I know most of you are familiar with the great English apologist, uh, C.S. Lewis. He's written many uh, apologetics for Christianity. He's also known for uh, his fiction series. Uh, so I know you're familiar with him. And I love something that I read that he said um, about those who ridicule Christians for believing that the Bible is God's Word. They, they ridicule us for this. They think we are simpletons, that we are knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. And they think we don't have a brain in our head since we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Lewis's response to people like this, he says, the answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. I love that. I, I've always loved that, that quote. If they can't understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. I've told you many times, the Bible, and I repeat this, I have to repeat this often to people, and I think it's an important thing to say to people, God does not explain Himself. The Bible is not God's explanation. He owes no man an explanation and He gives no explanation. He has, however, graciously revealed Himself through the Scriptures to a fallen and rebellious race. In one sense, Lewis is right. The Bible is for grown-ups. Obviously, it can be and should be taught to our children. And in fact, in this church, we teach the Bible to our children. Those are the, where we get our lessons from that we teach our children. But the Bible is a book for grown-ups in the sense that it deals with all the weighty issues of life. God. Does He exist? Who is He? What's He like? How can I know Him? The Bible deals with origins. Where did we come from? How did we get here? Why are we here? The Bible deals with life's purposes. It deals with the realities of sin and evil. How did mankind get in this fallen world, this, this predicament we're in? The Bible addresses salvation. How do we get out of this predicament that we're in? The Bible addresses judgment and the reality of fallen creatures being accountable to a Creator God. The Bible addresses heaven and hell. Are they real? And what are they like? The Bible addresses these grown-up issues. The born-again Christian, yeah, we get the Bible, right? I want to say to you what I say to you so often. Colossians 1.16, we were created by Him and what? For Him. We get that. That's why we bow our knee to the Word of God. That's why we order our lives around the Word of God. We get that it's not about us. It is about Jesus Christ. It's always been about Jesus Christ. It will always be about Jesus Christ. We exist for Him and for His glory. Parenthetically, I would say to you in a theological sense, we glorify Christ whether we come to Him or not. We will glorify Him in our damnation 
as well as in our salvation. If we reject Christ, if we reject Christ and we are damned, this brings glory to the righteousness and the judgment and the wrath of God. Those who hate Christ will glorify Him in that His wrath will be poured out on Him. I know many of you, if most of you, never heard that preached before. It's just a theological fact. You know, in his latest book, uh, who's that goofy guy in the States? What's his name? Um, he wrote a book called God Wins and Everybody Gets Saved. Rob Bell. That's not what God is after. God wins. God is glorified. No matter whether we accept Jesus Christ or not, God is glorified. God will be glorified. God will be glorified. But we, are, we glorify God as we love Jesus, as we come to Jesus. The, the, the great mercy and compassion and, and, and love of Christ is magnified and glorified for those who receive His gift of salvation. That's just a parenthetical thought I wanted to share with you. So we've said it from a, a thousand times from this pulpit. It's not about us. And the Bible is a book about uh, grown-up things and it's for grown-ups. And because we get that, we order our lives around what the Bible teaches. We order our lives around the realities of the Bible. It's about Christ. We get that. And oh, if we're real Christians, we live like we get that, right? We live every day like He is the most important person in our life. Guess what? He is! He is the most important person in your life. Every single day. Every single day. And that's what born-again Christians understand. That's what they understand. That's what grown-up, born-again Christians understand. And because we understand that we live radically different lives, from those who reject Christ, and even from those who are merely religious in a Christian sense. You know, there are millions of people who go to church, but that's, what, that's the sum and substance of their faith. They go to church. They don't live it in the world. Well, that's not Christianity at all. That's not biblical Christianity at all. So, the born-again believer, the one who takes what Jesus says seriously and seeks to live it out, we understand that our lives are radically different from those who don't believe that. Jesus is God. And for the thinking person, that reality changes every aspect of our life if we really believe He is who He says He is. And understanding that Jesus is our Creator, Redeemer God, we order our lives around Him and around His words. As John Piper says, we no longer chase bubbles that burst. You know, the rest of the world's just chasing bubbles that burst. They're all going to burst! Every one of them. Even religion. Even Christian religion will burst. Jesus says, many will say unto Me, Lord, Lord. And He'll say, I don't know who You are. It will all burst, beloved. Anything you put your hope in other than Jesus Christ, it will burst. It will turn to ashes. 
before you. We don't chase those bubbles that burst. Paul said it, 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Colossians 3.2, Paul says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. This is how the born-again Christian lives. This is how the real Christian lives. We don't do it perfectly. But this is our heartbeat. This is our mindset. This is our motivation. You know, quote C.S. Lewis again. He wrote that great satire, Screw Tape Letters. How many of you have read the Screw Tape Letters? You should read it. It's a great book. It's about a senior demon named Screw Tape who's advising uh, and mentoring a junior demon named Wormwood. And Screw Tape writes to Wormwood and he says, Man, we've got these humans completely fogged about reality. And I love that. I love that terminology. I thought, how accurate that is. You know what it means to be fogged. I looked it up. To be in a stupor, to be confused, to be dazed, to be muddled, to be befuddled. And I thought, man, that's the vast majority of the human race. Satan has got us in the fog. Jesus cuts through the fog. We're no longer fogged in Christ. We understand ultimate reality. It's Jesus Christ. It's not my life. It's not my dreams. It's not my hopes. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. That's ultimate reality. We were created by Him. And we were created for Him. In Christ, we are set free to live the life God designed us to live. And I pray that many, if not most, of you are living that life. A life of seeking Him. A life of knowing Him. A life of trusting Him. A life of obeying Him. That's what your life is about. If I'm a third... I'm just a third party, disinterested party, and I, I, can, I, get, I just can run the video and I can watch your life, I'm reading off your life. Sam loves Jesus, he trusts Jesus, he honors Jesus, he obeys Jesus. I can just read it off his life. That's what real Christianity is. Unbelievers are supposed to be reading Jesus off your life. They're supposed to be reading Jesus off your marriage, off your relationships, off your studies, off your career. Beloved, you're supposed to, your, your life is supposed to be shouting the name of Jesus in all that you say and do. And that's what Hebrews 11 is about. That's what Hebrews 11 is about. It's just about, it's just about biblical faith. <laughs> and it looks like that. It looks like men and women hopelessly in love with Christ serving Him radically, loving Him radically, honoring Him radically, obeying Him Radically. You may remember several weeks ago we saw in the first few verses of Hebrews 11 that God defines faith and so there's no misunderstanding about what He's actually talking about. He spends the rest of the chapter illustrating what He means by faith. So when we study Hebrews 11, we, we're not susceptible to have some religious professional tell us that it's just brain dead, heart dead, uh, mental assent to facts. It's not that. It's not that. That's not biblical faith. It's not that 
at all. It's not merely going to church. It's not merely having sound doctrine. It's not merely participating in ordinances. It's not merely repeating rote religious phrases. It's none of that. It's loving Christ and obeying Christ. And when we fail to obey Christ, what? We confess our sin and He is faithful and just to forgive us. We get back up and we obey Christ. It's really simple. Christianity is very simple. You just go with Jesus, man. <laughs> you just do what He says. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Christianity is very simple. It's very simple. And God says here in Hebrews 11, this is what I mean when I mention faith. When I talk about being saved by faith, this is what I mean. Let there be no confusion. God says, this is what I mean. This is exactly what I mean. And so you can't mess it up. Let me illustrate it in the lives of real men and real women. Genuine, authentic, saving, biblical faith. It is a lifestyle, beloved. It is your life. If it is not your life, then it'd be my guess you, you don't know Jesus Christ at all. You may be playing religion with Him. But if He is not the center and the core of your life, I suspect you do not know Him. You do not know Him at all. God expects His people to not only believe that He is, but to believe that He's awesome. Beloved, if you believe He is who He says He is, your life will be radically different than if you're just merely religious. If you believe He is, and He is as awesome as He says He is, <laughs> you will take Him at His word. Even if it looks risky, we've talked about this many times, you will take Him at His word. God loves it when His people live like He's Almighty. When His people live like He's sovereign. When His people live like He's trustworthy. When His people live like He's omnipotent. Beloved, that's what faith is. That's what faith is. This is what God is going to show to us in Hebrews. Hebrews 11. And they'll just be, as I said earlier, there'll just be this aroma coming off of you. We talked about this in Young Adult Bible Study this week. There's this aroma on you. You smell like God. You just smell like God. You have that aroma of Jesus in your life. If you missed the first sermon in this series, Hebrews 11, 1-3, I just invite you to go out on the podcast site. Uh, if you don't know about that, you can email me. I'll send you the link. Go out on the podcast site and listen to it. I think it's important for you to listen to the, the first sermon in this series. It's, it's, it's foundational, so I'm, I'm going to invite you to do that. I'm not going to recover verses 1-3. through three. Tonight, I just want to briefly touch on verses 4 and 5, and then we're going to spend a little time on verse 6. Look at verse 4. Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Why is Abel the first person of faith mentioned? Why is Adam and Eve not the first? Can anyone think of why that might be true? Okay. You know, Adam and Eve had some pre-fall knowledge, right? 
Adam and Eve had pre-fall knowledge of God. They saw God. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They knew God in a, quite a unique way. They are utterly unique in the human race. So the Holy Spirit starts with Abel. Abel's the first uh, man of faith post-fall. He has no pre-fall knowledge of God. This is why the Holy Spirit starts with Abel. Abel teaches us there's only one way to worship that pleases God. It's by faith. Unlike most men, even most who call them Christians, Abel didn't come to God just any old way he wanted. He didn't come to God on his terms. He came to God on God's terms. And this pleases God, right? You can see it in the text. It pleases God for men to come to Him the way He stipulates. We don't get to just make up any way we want to come to God. We must come the way He stipulates. Abel sacrificed the way God had stipulated. And he did it. He did it by faith. This pleases the Lord. So Abel teaches us how to worship in a way that pleases God. We must worship by faith. We don't trust in our good works. We don't trust in our rote prayers. We don't trust in our ordinances. We trust in the Lord alone by faith. Verse 5, Enoch teaches us how to live, in a way, to live in a way that pleases God. That's by faith. Abel worships in faith. Enoch lives by faith. I mean, really, we could stop right here. But thank the Lord, he doesn't stop right here. If you go back and look at Genesis chapter 5, you clearly see twice in the Genesis text that Enoch walked with God. That simply means he lived in a manner uh, pleasing to God. Let me ask you, beloved, are you walking with God? By faith. Abel worships in faith. Enoch lived by faith. We need to understand that. Which brings us to verse 6, which in my mind may be one of the most important verses in all the Bible. The Bible teaches that we are saved by faith, so it seems logical that we would need to understand what God means by it. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. God doesn't tell us why He is pleased by faith. He simply tells us that He is. I love what John Piper says. We can discern why God would be pleased by faith simply by looking at the character of God. And I found this very interesting and I want to share it with you. First, why is God pleased when men believe that He is? Well, because He is. <laughs> right? He is the great, unseen, uncreated I Am God. What did He tell Moses? What is His name? I am that I am. He's the self-existent God. You know, he says in Romans chapter 1, my fingerprints are all over the created order. He says in Romans chapter 1, he says, you know I exist. Men are without excuse. You know it. I made you like that. I wired you like that. You know I'm here. You know, I've said it many, many times. Many, many times. You may be a liar, but you're not an atheist. You may be a liar, but you're not an atheist. 
There are no atheists. God has never made an atheist. Now men may say they are, but they're merely lying. They're merely suppressing the truth of God that's within them. Again, Romans chapter 1. But God delights in the fact that His creatures would acknowledge His Godness, His I amness. There's no one like Him. There is no one like Him. I am who I am. God says. And the believing heart submits to that, that reality. We don't suppress that truth down in us. We let it, we let it bubble up and we get it. Jesus is the reason we exist. We were created by Him and for Him. Moreover, as we, as we study Hebrews 11, we'll find out that God is not only pleased when we believe that He is, He's pleased that when we live in such a way that it's evident to everyone around us that we believe He is. I hope I didn't lose you there. This aroma of God is coming off of our lives. As I said earlier, God expects His people to live like this. So I want to ask you again, do you live like this? Can people read I Am off your life? <laughs> do they read I Am off your words? Do they read I Am off your relationships? This is what God has called His people to do and to honor Him in this way. Do those around you believe that God is because you live like you live? Let me just add briefly to this first point about believing that God is. The, the Bible doesn't say we must believe that there is a God. There are millions and millions of people. Shall we say billions of people who believe there is a God, but they do not acknowledge Jesus Christ. They do not acknowledge Jesus Christ. So, Hebrews 11.6 is not talking about just believing in God in some generic way. It's believing in the God of the Bible. It's believing in the, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. It's believing in Jesus Christ. This is what pleases I am. This is what pleases Him. You know, there's so much generic talk about God in the public domain. Listen, I'm going to challenge you as Christians. If you call yourself a Christian, don't go out in the world and talk about God anymore. Generically. Don't talk about God generically anymore. Because almost everybody will allow you to speak about God generically. I'm going to challenge you to, to, to use the name Jesus Christ. That's what you need to do out in the world. We don't accept any generic definition of God. God is Jesus. I can remember when I was in Doha preaching, I had a, an American come up to me and he goes, oh, I'm so great, I just got to Doha, I'm so great to be here because uh, Islam worships the same God I worship. I said, wrong! Jehovah and Allah are not the same. Islam rejects Jesus Christ. I challenge you, beloved. I challenge you. Speak His name in the world. Don't talk about... A generic God anymore. Don't do it. I know, I know it's hard. Sometimes I catch myself. And I'll, but I, I, I consciously try to speak the name of Jesus Christ and not use the generic term of God 
Men love to make up their own user-friendly, pliable, acquiescent cartoon God, and there are millions of them out there. So you have to be, you have to be specific. The second great fact about God mentioned here in verse 6 regarding biblical faith, what's the second thing that we learn about God in, in Hebrews 11.6? What is it? Someone tell me from the text. He's what? He's stingy. He's a stingy God. What does the text say? He rewards His people. He rewards everyone that comes after Him. I think Gary, I don't know what text Gary was reading. Was it King James or New King James? He rewards all those who diligently seek Him. The King James says, God is a generous God. He is a generous God. I like to summarize Hebrews 11.6 like this. Real faith believes the biblical God is and the biblical God is good. I think you can always remember that. He is and He's good. Real Christians believe in and live out His godness and His goodness. That's really Hebrews 11.6. We believe in and live out His godness and His goodness. God is this great, irrepressible fountain of life and joy and blessing. And it delights His heart when His people think of Him like this. And they risk everything sometimes because they love Him because they know He is a good God. He is a faithful God. Beloved, you can risk it all for Jesus Christ. You will be rewarded. Either temporally and or eternally. Both. He's a good God. He's a generous God. He's omnipotently generous. You know, I love this about the Lord. You can just pin your ears back and go with Him. He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And God delights in it when His people know this about Him. And they live this. They live this out in their lives. He's a good God. He's a trustworthy God. He's a generous God. Biblical faith comes to God delighting in the fact that He is, and biblical faith comes to God delighting in the fact that He is good. God says, I love it, when the hearts and minds and lives of My people display not only My being, but My beauty. Their lives display not only my existence, but my excellence. Their lives display my generosity and my abundant loving kindness. Beloved, are you living in such a way that the unbelievers around you can see these things in your life, can see these realities in your life? I'm going to revisit just quickly um, verse 1. We saw that faith, God's definition of faith, It's the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. There's a parallel here with verse 6. The hoped for things are God's reward. And God says, it's a done deal. For all who come after Me, it's a done deal. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Again, verse 6 parallels verse 1 of Hebrews 11. God is the great unseen. God is the great unseen. I said it to you several weeks ago when I preached the first sermon in this series. We can remember 
God's definition of faith simply by remembering this, God is the substance of things hoped for. God is the evidence of things not seen. You know, Christians can do mighty things not because our faith is so great, but because our God is so great. We always need to keep the emphasis on God. It's not because we're so special, our faith is so special, it's because God is so special. It just takes the faith of a mustard seed, right? That's all it takes. God brings all the power. God brings all the power, all the provision. This is the overriding point of Hebrews 11. It's what faith means. It's what faith is. It's what faith knows. Our God is God and our God is good. And it's written, it's the signature of your life. Again, the third party, the third party, disinterested party, look at your life. Yeah, they belong to Jesus. They belong to Jesus. They believe He's God. They believe He's good. Look how they live. Look how they love. Look how they serve. Look how they give. Look how they live their life. Look how they repent of their sin. Look how they love their, their spouse. Look how they raise their kids. People can they get that aroma off of our life. And I want to say this to you, beloved. There's this addicting truth. We've talked about it so many times in this pulpit. It's this addictive reality that those who obey God... Can, can someone finish my sentence? Those who obey God get God. Those who obey God get more of God. You remember the great promise of Jesus in John 14.21. He says, when you keep My commandments, I'll come to you. I'll disclose Myself to you, Jesus says. I'll disclose Myself to you. That's why I'm hooked on obedience. Because He comes to Me. And He discloses Himself to Me in a new and mighty and more powerful way than I've known Him before. Beloved, this is why Christians obey the Lord. It's not because we're a bunch of do-gooders and rule-keepers. It's not because we ought and we should. It's because we love Him. And it's because He discloses Himself to us in our obedience. Just read the Psalms. I trust you heard the Psalm that I opened with. It's not about ought and should. It's about desire. I'll just read a couple to you. Psalm 42.1 As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for Thee, O God. My soul thirsts for Thee, for the living God. Psalm 63.1 O God, Thou art my God. I shall seek Thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for Thee. My flesh yearns for Thee. Psalm 143.6 I stretch out my hands to Thee. My soul longs for Thee. This is why Christians live like Hebrews 11. Let me say that. Let me restate that. This is why real Christians live like Hebrews 11. Again, you always have to understand I'm excluding those who are merely religious. I'm talking about those who are in love with Jesus and are in the process of giving themselves away to Him. That's what I'm always talking about in this venue when I'm talking about Christians. It's not about, oh, I ought to or I should. It's about I love Him. And I want to honor Him in my life. That's what it's about. That's what it is about in your life, I trust. Tonight, if you call yourself a Christian, it's the heart of Hebrews 11. It's why these men and women did these extraordinary things. Because their God is God. And their God is good. 
There is this obscene fallacy in much of modern Christianity that I want us to be aware of as we go through Hebrews 11. You will find many false teachers who will say to you, well, Hebrews 11 doesn't have anything to do with salvation. Hebrews 11 is for the super-duper Christian. Hebrews 11 is for the higher-tier Christian or the second-tier Christian. That's, the second, that's about the second blessing. It doesn't have anything to do with salvation. You can pray the prayer to receive Jesus as Lord, but you never have to submit to Him, pardon me, as Savior, but you never have to submit to Him as Lord. This is a common teaching in the church. Beloved, it's not biblically sound. You can't have Jesus as Savior and not have Him as Lord. You can't split Jesus like that. That's false teaching. That's false teaching. Real Christianity looks like Hebrews 11. You know, we, in the book of James, some time ago now, and what, is the book of, what does God tell us in the book of James? Biblical faith is not just the one who listens to the Word or the one who talks about the Word. It's the one who does the Word. And I guess, you know, this is one truth I hammer all the time because most of you are passing through. And I don't know if you're going to a false church or not. I don't know if you're going to go sit under some guy, you know, that just plays patty cake with you. I don't know. I mean, there are many churches like that in the world. But I'm always going to challenge you. And I do it almost every week. What real Christianity is. What biblical Christianity is. What God has really called us to. And we understand we are not saved by works, but because we are saved, the works flow out from love. From love and from desire. Jesus said, a, a man is like a fruit-bearing tree. You can tell what he loves. All you have to do is look at his life. Really, all you have to do is look at his checkbook. You can tell what he loves. It's right there in black and white. You can tell what He prizes above all things. Look at His life. Jesus says a man is as easy to read as an apple tree. If there's apples on that tree, yeah, it's an apple tree. A man is like that. You can read him simply looking at his life. Hebrews 10, 38-39. and 39. I'm almost finished. The writer of Hebrews says, but... God says through the writer of Hebrews, but my righteous one shall live by faith. God expects His people to live this way. God goes on to say, uh, Hebrews 10.38, if, if the man shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But look what he says in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we are of those who have faith through the preserving of the soul. Beloved, as we go through Hebrews 11, and particularly tonight on Hebrews 11.6, I sense that God is challenging me, and I sense He's challenging you individually and you corporately as a church to live your faith. To live it in a large way. To live it in such a way that the unbelievers around you can see that your God is and your God is good. This pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. So, are you living your very, very, very short life like that? You know, my dad is dying. He will die in the next two or three weeks. My dad has been a witness to Jesus Christ all of his life to his family. And I can, 
I can sit with my Father and I can rejoice that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I, I sit there a couple of times with Him and I just was praying, Lord, take Him. Just take Him. I know it would be very much better for Him to be with you. Amen? And here's a man who, who, who has spent his life holding up the name of Jesus in front of his family and in front of his friends. And beloved, that's what I'm calling you to. You're going to be on your deathbed soon. Some of you may not even make it home tonight. We have no idea how long our lives are. We think we'll live, you know, maybe we'll get 80 years. Maybe you won't get one more minute. I don't know. Maybe I won't finish this sermon, right? Maybe I have an aneurysm. I'm out of here. But beloved, rejoice if I crash. Rejoice for me. It'd be hard on Karen. But rejoice for me. Rejoice for me. I'm going to go be with the Lord. So, beloved, I call, you to the, I call you to live your faith radically because I want you to be ready that last day. That last day, no regrets. <laughs> that last day, no regrets. You're ready to step in front of Him. You're ready to look Him in the eye. And you're ready to hear, well done. Well done. My good and faithful servant. So I call you and I, I, I challenge you to, to study Hebrews 11 with me, to give yourself to the study of it and, 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 and to give your life to a life of faith. I challenge you. I exhort you. Don't waste one more day. Don't waste one more day with pretend Christianity. Don't waste one more day. You don't have time. Don't waste one more day with that. Let's pray together. Great and awesome, holy, majestic, righteous, infinite, eternal, beautiful God. Forgive us, Father, that You have not always been the core of our life. You have not always been the center of our life. That we have given our affections to lesser things. That we have become distracted by the things of the world. Father, we repent. We confess and repent of that sin tonight. Lord, we want to pick up the gauntlet that You've thrown down for us tonight. That we would walk like men and women of God. That we would walk like what You say matters more than anything else. That we would walk by faith. We would worship by faith. We would live by faith. We would obey You no matter how risky it looks. No matter how costly it looks. No matter how uncomfortable it is. We would be like these men and women of Hebrews 11. We will simply obey out of love and desire because we are hopelessly in love with such a beautiful and great God. How could we not love You? How could we not honor You? How could we not praise You? So Lord, we pray, convict our hearts where we have been lukewarm. Convict us, Lord, where we have been merely playing religion. Lord, I pray, call us to a deeper place tonight. Each one of us to a deeper place. A place where You disclose Yourself sweetly and intimately. That place of obedience. Call us there, O Lord. Give us the courage to come. Give us the faith to come, we pray. We praise You in the name of Jesus. Amen.